Welcome to the Embodied Business Revolution podcast with myself, Polly Lavarello, created for entrepreneurs and online business owners who know that business gets to be different from what we've been told. Join me and my entrepreneurial guests for insights into how they've created wild success while dropping the hustle and honoring their well-being. Because I believe that success is more than a financial destination. It's how we get to feel every day. Welcome to the Embody Business Revolution podcast, and I'm really excited to say we've got yet another glorious guest on the show, Lucy Rowett, my friend, as well as certified sexologist, fell over that word already, you can tell I'm not used to using the word sex, <laughs> <laughs> and sex coach who is passionate about helping women and people with vulvas let go of sex- sexual shame, see I still can't say it, <laughs> and hang-ups and embrace pleasure to create the passionate relationships they've always desired. She uses a combination of mind-body tools with evidence-based sexuality education to create a fun and open space for women to explore their full erotic potential. Her speciality is working with women and people with vulvas who come from faith backgrounds who are struggling to let go of sexual shame and enjoy pleasurable and intimate relationships again. She is a resident on UK contraception platform, The Lowdown, and she is regularly quoted in the media for her expertise in sexual health and wellness, pleasure and sexual shame, including men's health, GQ, Kinkley, the Odars, the Sun, Insider and Glamour. So... I'm so, so happy to have you here. As you can probably tell already, I'm bumbling around the word sex, which is why it's such an important subject and why I'm so happy to have you here. It didn't feel right to have a podcast called The Embodied Business Revolution and not speak to the part of embodiment, which is essentially sex. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's uh, certainly in my journey, it's been very much being very cerebral and gradually learning more about what it is to be more in touch with my body and recognizing at some stage it's inevitable that you'll reach the stage where sex comes into the the equation and it's you know to be fully at peace with your body involves being fully comfortable with your own sexuality and your own sexual needs and all the other things but you are the one who can speak much better about this so Lucy I'd love for you to share I mean there's so much that you can share you and I have had the most (laughs) juicy conversations in the past from everything from neurodiversity to sex but I would love to start with what I just referenced that you support people who have come from faith and perhaps still have faith but perhaps there was some faith-based shame around sexuality so I would love for you to share with me your own story from where you started to where you are now that brought you from being a sex coach I'm sure that's a question a lot of people have is how does somebody become a sex coach so I'd love you to share your story pretty much every interview I do or when I meet people and I'm always like would you want the long story or the short story but what's really interesting is it feels like whatever length of story I give that embodiment does run through it um because I grew up um in the noughties in London in a very a very religious family um luckily but I always say they were I guess they were nice kind of religious not the shove it down your face you're going to go to hell religious so I was very lucky with that um but you know I grew up going to church and I very much embraced Christianity as a teenager and I was very involved in the evangelical movement you know, in evangelicalism and you know most of my family are still very religious um so generally they're, they're Church of England so Church of England isn't quite as extreme as some of the other ones but there's still evangelicalism and so the thing about a lot of most of the big religions Christianity for now and it's very disembodied. And also one of the big things that influenced me as a teenager is I was very exposed to what's called purity culture. And if you're not familiar with it, it's 
I'm probably not doing a very accurate description. It was a counter movement that kind of started as a reaction to the sexual revolution of the 1960s, it started in America and it kind of became more popular in the 80s, 90s, noughties and is still very alive and kicking today, which was kind of, in short, your whole morality and your spiritual worth is tied into your sexuality and in order to be spiritually pure, you must not be engaging, no sex before marriage, but not just that, is it, there's so many teachings around it and so much dogma around it. And in essence, in the church that I was in, in a lot of Christianity, there is, and I would also say a lot of the big religions has a huge fear of anything erotic or anything sensual, because that leads a slippery slope down to lusty carnal sin or whatever (laughs) you know and so you know that was what I came from and then when I was a teenager in my I got sick with ME chronic fatigue syndrome so I had to go on a very long recovery process and part of that it's a very very long story and in that journey I realized that my faith wasn't serving me anymore that it was actually hindering my recovery and my progress um certainly the faith that I was being exposed to, which was very much, you can't trust yourself, you're sinful, you can only trust God. Whereas in a lot of the therapy that I was having, it was trust yourself, love yourself. So I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> which which one is correct? <laughs> um, and you know, it was a lot of stuff that felt, you know, it was a lot of soul searching. And then part of that, when I decided to consciously leave the faith, was that, oh, I can explore sex now. Because you know, I was, as a teenager, I had hormones and I was horny, like many, many teenagers are. But I learned that it was wrong and sinful. So I just had to kind of lock it down, just just sit on it, just shut it down. And, you know, there was a lot of shame that I felt when, you know, like I'd be watching movies or TV series and you'd see a, a sex scene come on and there's me kind of riveted at it thinking, oh, God my God, am I a pervert or something? And, you know, now I know that I was having very normal experiences, you know, and I started to have fantasies as a teenager. And I thought they were so wrong and bad that I became afraid of them and just did everything I could to stop them. So it's all of these things where that kind of dam opened where it's like, oh, well, I'm not a Christian anymore, so I can explore this now. And the forbidden time, fruit. <laughs> forbidden fruit. And you know, it, that that was also a big part of my faith deconstruction, understanding all of the messages and both implicit and explicit that I'd received around sexuality and morality, I'm using quote marks there, were really, really fucking harmful. And they really screwed me over, especially this kind of binary mentality. And oh, it's a very long story. And then it was when I, at the time, I was also bedridden, so confined to a bed, living in a care home. Um, and so I had all the time in the world to Google. So I ended up Googling everything I was previously told was the devil. <laughs> Funnily enough, it wasn't. And that was when I encountered sacred sexuality and Tantra. And there's a lot that I'm very critical of that now. But what it did give me was that, oh, my my sexuality is something that can be really beautiful and can be a connection to the divine, whatever the divine is. And that started that gap. And at the same time, in terms of embodiment, you know, having years of chronic health stuff, that was also learning how to be in my body. And that's kind of an adjacent, a parallel track that we're talking about, because in my own recovery, in my own health, it's always been embodiment work that has been the stuff that's helped me the most. 
And so it's inevitable that it merges in with my work. And then how I became a sex coach, um, I guess when you're in your early and mid twenties, you think you know everything, and uh, <laughs> but also I still do. I still do. I know. Um, of course, I do. Um, but also, I was working with a recovery coach at the time in a recovery program, and part of one of the tracks was life purpose. And because I'd never worked before, because I'd missed, you know, I was bedridden or living in and out of care homes and hospitals, so I was like, well, if I could do anything I wanted with my life, what would I do? work sex and I think that's you know it's also partly probably an ADHD thing where if I like something I'll just go for it without really thinking about the consequences as much and so I found a trick I mean also prior to this I've been doing various workshops and retreats you know doing a lot of my own exploration as well um and I was also blogging at the time and in, I had a friend who was like you could be a sex coach now and I was like well, no I I'd like to get some training and I'm really glad I listened to that mm. so I found a program that I really liked um and I I um I had some money that my granddad left me in his will um so I, I did the training and then they liked me so much they then hired me to do their own social media and marketing so I managed to really alongside my studies and after I graduated really being involved in that sexology community which gave me a really good foundation um and also probably having ADHD and being very much act first, think later. I kind of really took the whole networking advice to heart and just networked my ass off. So mm. I went to every event, absorbed everything I could around business and marketing. And I went to every event I could, not just to, for, from a cold business perspective, because I was genuinely interested. Um, and that kind of ties in where I think a really good lesson in business is also you can't beat human relationships, you know, relationships are everything. And when you, you pay to go to people's event and from a place of I'm really genuinely interested, that is going to form much more long standing professional relationships than trying to spam people with whatever. Oh my um, gosh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And it's, um, so that's how I came to be here. And I've done various other different, you know, whenever you're a, say a, either a holistic or, healing therapeutic style professional you know we can't stop doing courses we're always learning so I've done various other things and then you know I've I, don't, I could go I could go along with this forever um and then the embodiment piece comes back was when I did some more trauma awareness training thinking you're doing it for your clients and then realizing oh shit <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh shit and so that kind of got me back onto the path of somatic work and uh, nervous system theory I dipped in and out of it for years um so that's how a lot of my both personal life and professional life has gone more down that route as well so yeah this is where I am now you know I just love to reflect I just love this level of self-awareness that has paved this entire path, that kind of level of self-inquiry you have in, you know, in this healing that you've done, that you've understood what it is that you've needed it and you've reached out for the resources, the training, the people, the relationships, the experiences yeah. to help you understand yourself better. And it's really beautiful to see that you've created a career path and expertise Thank you. Out, out of, you know, your own situation that is going to help so many. And 
What I found really fascinating listening to you is that while yes, faith is famous, we know, like we know, I mean, I'm not an expert when it comes to religion, but let's just say there's definitely a lot of uh, taboo around sex in various different religions. But what's really interesting as I was listening to you was reflecting that despite myself not being particularly religious, my parents not being particularly religious, there's something in general about British culture (laughs) where there is still just this massive taboo, hence me falling over the word sex (laughs) every time I said it, because it's not a word that, you know, even if I say it in anywhere public, I feel like I almost have to whisper it. So like one thing I can jump in there, and I I talk about this all the time in my own work um, and online, is that you have to remember that even if you did not grow up in a religious household and your parents weren't, your grandparents probably were and your great grandparents and you know in the UK for example in the USA our our countries have a history of religious in religious influence you know 100 years ago 200 years ago and you have to remember that how big it was and because mm-hmm. of that because everybody was religious it was part of life that those people then went on to create laws, to shape policies, you know, influence the world of medicine and science. So we have to understand that even if you are not personally religious, you, you can't escape. It's where we come from. It's the soup we swim in. And those attitudes, those values, attitudes and beliefs have filtered down, even if we're not consciously aware of it or consciously believe them. And that's what I feel is really important to remember that, we, we don't escape it. And not just religious beliefs, the general values, attitudes and beliefs of the culture that we come from and that we live in. So you can think of yourself as a free thinker, but we can't escape our conditioning and, and what we come from. So I wanted to add that in as well. No, well, it's super relevant and really important. And the other thing I picked up on when you were speaking is when you referenced how ADHD influences the decisions you make in your business. Um, And I know you and I have talked about this in the past. And so while I don't want to veer too far off the subject of what it is like being a sex coach, I I felt speaking about what it is to be embodied in business, that level of self-awareness, not just around your own needs and your journey and your experience with your body and CFS and sex, but also this kind of curveball of neurodiversity and ADHD mm-hmm. and that deeper understanding that's helped you understand how you make decisions in business. What does that look like for you? I think, I mean, we talked about this a lot privately as well. I think that, so first of all, like a lot of people who are self-employed and have their own businesses, we don't necessarily do it for shits and giggles. We often do it because we don't fit into a quote unquote, the mainstream of regular paid employment. And often those reasons tend to include either physical or mental divergence of some kind. So, you know, it's so common that people who are self-employed and have their own business, turns out we have ADHD or similar or autism or something like that. And for me, it came from one thing I'm really grateful for is that because I was in recovery communities for so long with CFSME, and by that, I mean communities and programs that are specifically geared to recovery rather than supporting and oh, how awful it is. Um, it was really kind of drummed into me early on that I have to, it's a whole life thing and everything I have, everything in my life needs to revolve around my well-being. And any time I am not really taking care of myself or living in a way that feels good, my body very quickly tells me. And so part of that has been 
you know, a journey of boom and bust and a journey of, you know, crashing and having energy and crashing. And it's, I think for a lot of us, it's this journey of trying to do things a certain way, hitting brick walls, whether they be financial, whether they be your brain or your body and realizing I have to do it differently because I, I cannot function any other way. And also that, you know, as, as coaches, part of how we, we work and with our clients, we tend to live it ourselves is let's find solutions to this. Let's find something to, a way to optimize it. Let's find a way to thrive rather than just get through. And so I'm always devouring podcasts and resources. And a lot of it was just really, really learning to embrace that my own personal flow is going to look very different to somebody who does not have neurodivergence or physical health. And that Mm. is just as valid as somebody who can sit at their desk and work for five hours straight. And it was a lot of unpicking, um, a lot of ways that we think how business is supposed to run, how work is supposed to run. And the way that I was unconsciously shaming myself for that and finding communities, finding resources to really embrace that. It's, you know, for example, um, I was talking to a friend earlier. She was like, you know, I, I think I can only do five hours work a day. I can't do that. My brain does not function that way. Mm. Like I know that I have a certain window where I'm good. If I push against that window, shit falls to pieces. I am cranky. I'm exhausted. It has a knock-on effect. And so it's been a constant process of tuning, refining, learning how to really embrace the way that I work and what lights me up and the things that get me in the flow and orienting more towards that, if that makes any sense. That does make sense. And one of my favorite questions I love to ask on this podcast is, what does your working day or week look like? You know, when someone is taking consideration of what their body needs, aside from the hours you allow yourself to work, what are the other things you do to kind of nourish yourself in the process and and keep yourself in balance where is where it's possible? We always know there's, there's sometimes more challenges that we don't have so much control over, but what does it look like on a normal day? And like, yeah, there's, um, we talk about balance. It's, uh, I like the term rather than balance, it's harmony. Mm. And so for me, I mean, by the way, this has taken me a few years to really refine down because I was for a long time in, in patterns of boom and bust. And so for me, I all of my face-to-face or my calls with clients, um, I have a calendar set up so that I only do face-to-face calls between 11 a.m. and 7 p.m., Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And I give myself a maximum of two calls a day. That's it. I cannot, that's my absolute limit. And probably four calls a week. I know for me, that is my absolute limit. And so what I do is every time, you know, I have software set up, every time a client books in, I'll immediately go into my Google calendar and block off at least an hour or two before and after. So I've got that buffer time. I cannot do back-to-back calls does not Mm. work for me ideally I need at least two or three hours in between a call and then on Tuesdays and obviously if I don't have a client booking in on a Monday Wednesday or Friday I can I can slot in other things for example live streams or videos or just generally cracking on with things I need to do Tuesdays is more of an admin day or maybe it's a podcasting day um, or something like that Thursdays in general are my days off where I don't work Today is an exception because uh, <laughs> today is an exception because we are moving countries at the end of the month, and so oh I'm 
it's one of those things where I a lot of my regular routine is being a bit up in the air at the moment so things are being jiggled but in general I don't work on Thursdays I try not to work on Thursdays um also part of my non-negotiables is I have to go for at least one walk a day I need to get sunlight I need to do a lot of mindfulness I have to do a lot of neurosensory and grounding exercises um a really game a really big game changer for me when I worked with a coach and even before that listening to a podcast was actually scheduling in the stuff that makes me feel good. So, you know, play, well-being, scheduling that in before doing anything else. That was, that's actually really hard. Yes, it is. It is hard. When Um, I first started scheduling those things, I would schedule them, but I would then find myself ignoring them. The second a client would say, oh, but can I speak to you tomorrow? And I'd look and the the only availability was the two hour break. I'd give myself a lunch and a walk and I'd be like, oh, okay, you can have this hour. Yeah. So I love that, that you schedule it and you stand by it. (laughs) Most of the time. And it's not perfect. There are times when I do let things creep in. And like, you know, to anyone listening, it's okay. It's, it's a wobbly process. It's not like you have it. I have it on lock all the time, but in general, I'm much better at having it on lock than I was two or three years ago, two or three years ago, my boundaries with it were were a lot more wonky. And also, um, I have a thing where I don't do calls on weekends Mm. and you know, in um, whenever I lead group programs, the calls tend to be in the evenings because I tend to work with American or people in the US as well. I know that I can only do one or two evening calls a week. And even that is pushing it because after 8 p.m., my brain is, my brain is, it's mush. And I can, you know, if it's not too heavy, I can do it. But I know that if I keep doing evening calls, I think what's, it's a blessing and a curse of having a body that is like mine in that my body tells me relatively quickly when I'm pushing against those limits. And I've learned through trial and error that if I am continually pushing against those limits, it will say something quite strong. So it's been a real, that's also the embodiment process of really actually honoring my body. We can talk a lot about self-care and loving your body, but actually doing it on a day-to-day micro level it's a relationship just like any other relationship and it's hard it's Mm. really hard I don't want to ever say that this is easy and I'm living on a cloud of embodiment bliss it's not it's hard no and and you've learned the hard way haven't you and I love how you refer to it as you know whether it's a blessing or a curse because one of the things I would argue is that so many people who haven't experienced chronic health issues are still, their body is still perhaps suffering for the way that they're living, yeah. um, whether it's their mental health, whether it's their physical health. You know, I used to have chronic migraines and IBS and various things and, and awful, awful period pains, yeah. which all went away the moment I actually started dealing with the underlying healing that hadn't been done. And when I actually yeah. started to exercise those boundaries that like you say, it is a muscle. It's, it's rarely something that someone can immediately, you know, suggest, and then you just take on board and you go running with it. It is something. No, No. and like, also this is something that I talk about and I cover a lot with my clients because the ones that tend, you know, I love working with are often the ones who are very highly driven. And actually that's probably most people. We're constantly beating ourselves up. And I'm always saying to them, this is not a one and you're done. 
I'm, this is a very unsexy thing. But yes, it's really good you've done this now, but you will slip up, quote unquote, because this is a heal. This is one of my uh, mentors says every day is a school day. And I think this is something that can be a bit tricky in the coaching industry this idea that you just get over a pattern and that's it. And actually, that's not true. It's it, sometimes we can get past things, but often it's a really messy spiral of trial and error, trial and error, trial and trial and error. And I don't ever want to. And this also in this also refers to everything around sexuality as well. A lot of the clients, you know, that come to me, that's like, when am I going to be there? This place where everything's sorted. And I'm like, there are milestones, and there are there are, there are times when you're like, oh my god, I can't believe I ever I ever suffered with that. But think of this as an ongoing process where you go through cycles and patterns, rather than I'm going to promise you you're going to get to a place of orgasmic bliss and everything's sorted. That that's not how it works being a human. Yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. Like you say, it's the unsexy truth. There's lots of people like to package overnight success, but ultimately with anything that we're working towards, it's about being on that path, isn't it? It's about at least having an awareness. I think the saddest thing is to live a life where you have no awareness of what it's like to be in touch with your body and actually listen to your needs and honor those needs. The, The saddest stage is when there is no awareness it can be frustrating when you get from the stage of having the awareness and not being where you desire to be. But like you say, I think a lot of it is ex- exercising self-compassion and understanding that progress, not perfection. Um, and speaking of that, it does make me think about sex coaches. Mm-hmm. And um, I, particularly now on TV, there's so many kind of TV shows that speak more to the world of sex, sex coaching. What's the, was it? What's the program that's, I can't remember what it was. There's something on Netflix with Gillian Anderson as a oh, sex, sex education. Sex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, that was, that was a really good series. I mean, has she helped the reputation of sex therapists and sex coaches or has she made it worse? <laughs> In my opinion, anything that gets into pop culture is good. Well, mm. obviously with it, like I, I think in general, yes. I mean, it's like, there's always going to be critique, but actually I think she's been done a really good job of that. And it's like, another example is like the book 50 shades of gray, like, Mm. you know, people who are, you know, in the King BDSM community, they hate it because it's a really inaccurate description of BDSM and kink, but it brought BDSM and kink into popular culture. And it also got us talking about that women like to get off too. So even though the storyline was terrible and, you know, all of this in, in general, it was kind of positive, I think. So, yeah, I think, and sex education, it was done really well. Um, one of my friends was one of the screenwriters for it and they did a really, really good job. I think it was really well done. With that in mind, I'm curious to know, obviously some of us may have seen sex education, some haven't, yeah. but I would love to know what does it look like for somebody when they walk into the office of a sexologist, a sex coach, or a sex therapist, because I have this vision of a kind of cavern full of dildos and uh, handcuffs <laughs> hanging on. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like, I want to preface this by, first of all, all the work I do is online at the moment. Mm. Um, it really works for me better. And also because I work with people all over the world, it just works better. But when I was doing like stuff face to face in Brighton or Eastbourne and renting a therapy room, 
I think because I was renting a therapy room, I couldn't really make it my own. But even if I was making it my own, it every 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 sex coach, every sex therapist is different. Mm. But in general, we want to make whatever environment we're in, if it's a physical environment, somewhere that's welcoming and somewhere that feels cozy, that feels comfortable, that feels safe. And so, you know, I do like erotic art, um, but in general, I'm going to have more vulvas and vagina, <laughs> vagina inspired stuff. Um, it's interesting, like everyone is different. But for me, when I work with clients, I really want them to feel like it's accessible. And that the work that we do is always at their own, I say at their comfort zone, we always want to bounce those boundaries of comfort zone, but we have to start with that place of you feel comfortable, you feel safe as, you feel as safe as is good for you. And so because I work online, I work on Zoom, obviously they can only really see this background and it looks, as you can tell, it looks pretty generic. Oh, I have, I have at the moment, I have a vulva ornament hanging there, but you can't really (laughs) tell. (laughs) If I was, when I at some point do anything face to face again, the whole environment will want to be tailored to being cozy, maybe a bit sensual, but cozy and comfortable. And where you can walk in and be like, this is a place that feels permissive, but also supportive and nurturing as well. Mm. And also, like, you know, there's a big thing about dildos everywhere, it's very phallus centric. And, you know, penises are great, but what about the vulva? What about the clitoris? You know, what about boobs? Let's bring some of that back as well. I love that. And I guess I'm curious to, I always like to play devil's advocate slightly. And some might say, well, why does sex matter so much anyway? You know, we all go for poos. We all go for wheeze. We all, you know, do certain like things with our body. And, you know, we don't have to kind of, I I guess some probably do go for therapy about going to the bathroom. But, you know, um, but in general, where something is kind of happening and it's not like it's an issue because there's enough babies being born. So people are obviously having sex. I know, I know this is not my opinion, by the way, devil's advocate here. But for those who kind of go, what's the big deal around this? Like, you know, because what I, what I do know to be true, or maybe actually I'm wrong with this and I'm really happy to be corrected is I'm assuming, and this is an assumption here, that there are more people who go to standard therapy for their mental well-being than they do go to sex coaches or sex therapists yeah I think and I'm curious to know what your stance would be on that in regards to the importance it plays in our lives and the difference it can make when when you've done the work around sex that's a really big and powerful question you just raised like first of all you still you heard me going oh when you talked about babies being born And I've heard this so many times, often from men, and I'm like, you do know that you can get pregnant without ever having had an orgasm. Like, I say it's not that difficult to get pregnant. I'm not in terms of talking about fertility, but in terms of it takes an ejaculation to get pregnant. It does not take any skill from the part Mm. of anybody to get pregnant. And by the way, I'm not at all trying to dismiss fertility issues. That's a separate thing. But what I mean is that, Sex for reproduction is what we have been taught is what only counts as sex. And if you think about it, when you are having sex, Polly, with your partner or anybody listening, are you doing it to have a baby? There are very few times we are actually going to be engaging in sex in order to create a child. And a way to think about it is something I was taught was that our sexuality is intrinsic to who we are as humans. 
And by our sexuality, I don't just mean what we do with our genitals and with each other, but how we show up, how we think and feel, our relationship with our body, our relationship with pleasure, with intimacy. Um, there's a really, I'm sure you can Google it, like there have been studies on reasons why people have sex. And it's gone into like the hundreds, you know, to feel physically close to your partner, to have an orgasm, to feel a sense of release, to feel closeness, to feel good in your body. And, you know, I fundamentally believe these are fundamental human needs and human rights. And another way to think about it is we spend a lot of time, energy and money learning how to get better at things. You know, you buy books on how to cook really good food. We, you know, take courses in how to do crochet, on how to play tennis, on how to swim, how to run a business, how to start a podcast, on how to do your makeup, on how to, you know, play football or do sports or whatever. Um, but the idea that we would spend time, energy and money learning how to get better and make better lovers for a lot of people where's the gap there like if you think about all the sex education that most of us have received it's the equivalent of expecting us to expecting you to cook an amazing gourmet italian cuisine by only teaching you about salmonella yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically it's basically i love me. that and, and how many people have learned how to crochet and how much crocheting have they actually done <laughs> versus yeah. how often are they having sex or would or like, like to be having sex or like learning, teaching you how to crochet by showing you pictures of people who've been stabbed by crochet needles. Oh my gosh. Basically. <laughs> or like, you know, how the wool industry is harming sheep or something. Yeah. Um, so we have to remember all of the fear-based messages we've received. Mm. But also like, I, you know, for anyone listening, I really encourage you to think about the messages that you've received around sexuality and sex, especially like sex is natural everyone should know how to do it bullshit the desire for sex is more or less innate but in order to be a skilled lover both with yourself and with your partner and learning to how to have an orgasm learning how to feel pleasure is a skill just like anything else and you know if you've had a terrible lover which i'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has had that experience of having had a really terrible lover where you're lying afterwards thinking, oh my God, get me out of here. That was terrible. I wish he, she, or they <laughs> knew what the hell they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> but like, also another way to think about it is that we have all been taught about sex through innuendos through like this idea of don't do it don't do it don't do it like ladies keep your legs shut men shag as many as you can okay now you must become um, we, and we keep it hidden behind this veil now go into the bedroom and have multiple orgasms it, it doesn't add up and in terms of like mental health i do agree that people do would tend to go to a therapist more for mental health and yet often our sexuality is a big part of that as well. Mm. Like, you know, for example, if you're a woman in a relationship or a marriage and you can't have an orgasm, that can have a really knock-on effect on your ability to be intimate with your partner, where suddenly sex with your partner feels like a competition. It feels pressured. 
he, she or they is trying really hard to make you come and all that happens is you both feel inadequate. And so what happens is they stop initiating or you stop initiating or you keep pulling away. And then suddenly sex becomes a place of shame and embarrassment and I'm not good enough and I'm not a good enough lover and I'm not a woman enough or whatever. And then you start avoiding each other and then you start missing each other and all of these things that has this knock-on impact in all of your life. Um, often, you know, in general, people will come to me or to a lot of sex coaches often from a big thing that's happened that suddenly made them realise I want to get better at this or you know, whether they've been in really awful relationships or marriages or whether they've come from a religious background or in general where the issue of sex is causing a huge issue in their relationship or marriage where, and I'm talking in general about the clients that I work with, where the woman or person with a vulva feels like a gatekeeper, mm. where they're constantly pushing their partner away. And then often what happens is their partner has a very high libido and it impacts the whole of their relationship, which then impacts their stress levels, their family levels, their self-esteem, everything. So this is why, and this is just one thing of how our sexuality impacts our mental health and our vitality and our well-being. That's just yeah, and your relationships, part. and yeah, I mean that could totally destroy a relationship long term, couldn't it? Yeah. So. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. and I have, and I have another question actually, as I was listening to you, because earlier on you were referencing how, you know, 50 shades of gray was a positive thing and that at least got things mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. To a certain extent. To a certain extent, yeah. There, there are several things that are true all at the same time there. Yeah. But what I'm also kind of curious to know is I'm reflecting on the fact that when I was younger and certainly my parents' generation, you know, there was very little, the kind of sex scenes you see in old movies, <laughs> not oh. what, like what you see now, like Game of Thrones, of course, was really kind of, um, everyone talked about it for the fact that there were so many sex scenes and yeah. so much sex and violence. And of course, nowadays, with the various different devices we have between phones and iPads and the fact that kids are going into school with these things, there is more and more access. This isn't remotely talking about business, but I don't care anymore. Um, <laughs> but um, there are more and more people with access to sex in various different forms, whether it's porn or whether it's mm. you know on a popular TV show. And I'm curious to know, like, you know, is there a flip side to this popular, you know, like in some ways, yes, it's broken the taboo of sex and more people are talking about sex and exploring different elements of sexuality through all of these things. And at the same time, I know I've certainly seen you making arguments for the popular perception of what sex is. Like one thing I will say for myself is I can't remember what TV series it was, but we were watching a TV series where every time they showed a sex scene, the woman was always on top. And I was like, for crying out loud, who has come up with all these sex scenes? And why is the woman always on top? Like, you know, can we, is, is it the kind of in a, in a, like, are they not very inventive? The kind of camera angle dudes? Like, oh. is it just that that's all they, I just, I couldn't get my head around it. I was like, cause there were a fair few scenes, right? But every time the woman was always on top and it really, really bugged me. And it's stuff like that, that sometimes you think, how much is this skewing? the perception of men as to what good sex actually looks like is it doing more damage than good I'm curious to know what you're what, what you perceive this as oh god I mean like kind of piggyback on what you said multiple things can be true mm. um and I think first of all I want to say that you have to remember that most um in most tv series and movies certainly in the past you know before most of them are directed by men Mm. cisgender men maybe heterosexual maybe not 
and that and that means that everything they are directing is according to their own biases and often for the male gaze if you google um, what the male gaze is it you have to understand it's like you know there was a really good um diagram like if you ever saw the movie transformers and yeah. it was um with megan fox and like this is just one example where she's this like hot car mechanic or something it was directed by men and that means that their bias is going to filter through mm-hmm. even if they're not aware of it and this is why we have to understand that even women that are directed and sex scenes that are directed certainly before the previous few years was by the male gaze for the male gaze and so this is why you know it's why we need diversity in directing why we need more women and people who aren't cisgender white men directing because they give a completely different perspective but onto another thing like you know i talk a lot about porn and why we need to be nuanced about it it is an issue in terms of because of broadband internet we have 24/7 access to porn and it is very easy to access and you know at the same time i'm always very mindful of a lot of the fear mongering messages around it in terms of you know save the children this is a it is an issue and yet i think in many ways it's forcing us to confront a lot of our shadows in which parents are now having to get very intentional about the conversations they have with their kids mm, and true. i believe in teaching porn literacy because I do believe it is an issue when kids and adults are seeing a lot of certain types of porn videos, because remember, they're usually looking at the stuff from free tube sites, the stuff from free tube sites. That's another thing. It's capitalism. It's geared to clicks. They're literally only promoting videos in that algorithm to, uh, to cater to certain things. Porn follows algorithms like social media as well. This is fascinating. I had not considered any of this. And porn literacy, like I I totally see how that needs to be something that's taught in schools. Yeah, porn literacy and understanding, you know, when people say porn is bad, it's like, well, okay, but what kind of porn? What Mm. kind of videos? Because the stuff that tends to get the most clicks and the most views is the stuff that is more extreme and more intense, showing stuff that where the woman looks physically in pain because they know that this kind of hijacks the limbic brain, this is what gets more views and more clicks. So the same criticisms for social media apply to porn as well. Interestingly, did you know that YouTube or the idea of um, streaming videos or tube videos, it comes from porn? Wow. I mean, I think what I find so fascinating is, I can't remember what the statistics are, but I remember they were not alarmingly, but they were incredibly high in terms of how many people watch porn. And so it's quite funny as a, from a marketer's perspective, or as reflecting on how often I say to people, do not pretend the objection isn't in the room. You've got to face it head on. Otherwise yeah. that person is remaining, like is still dealing with that objection. And yeah. it's kind of similar with porn that like it or not, people are going to, whether they choose to watch it, whether they stumble across it. I remember once being at a house party, walking into a room full of lots of people watching it on yeah. my laptop in my room. I was like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> so like, you know, <laughs> that was your laptop in your room. But like, this is regardless why- of the context, it's, we're going to be, you know, it's part of our culture, isn't it? Whether people want to face it head on or not. And certainly like, you know, the generation of my parents where we kind of pretended people did or didn't do it, you know, it's very real. And so actually, rather than pretending this next generation aren't going to be impacted by it, affected by it or watching it is, would be naive. And I don't know what they teach in schools now, but I can certainly understand how porn literacy is really important to understand really what's going on. In the same way that like you just said, when we're watching 
movies understanding it's through the male gaze so many times you know if unless there's a female director or female people involved in terms of how the film's been put together that's why we see such one-dimensional female characters in certain films because there's not been a female on the script writing team well this is Um, when we have the vegetable test of like you know um where you watch a tv or you watch a tv show or a movie i think it it passes the vegetable test if you have two women or two people who aren't cisgender men having a conversation that does not involve a man (laughs) it's really interesting um but also like in the same way that we have to teach social media literacy especially around filters around body image because that's another parallel argument in that we have been exposed to so many photoshopped bodies and we know the impact that it's having on people's self-esteem and like also the thing about porn and erotic material this has always existed humans have been making smut since we were drawing phalluses on cave walls it Mm. has always existed and at the same time there has usually been some sort of push to push it down and say it's awful and morally reprehensible one of my colleagues he says porn is a bit like an encyclopedia of the human sexual subconscious yes and i think that's really interesting it's because you know not just through porn through social media many issues are being brought to the forefront and the shadow side of that is that our brains and our bodies have not evolved to be able to take it all in Mm. in the same way that we have to be very mindful of the impact of social media and being exposed to the media on our mental health and nervous systems because we are not our brains and bodies are not designed to be taking in this much information in the same way with 24 7 access to porn our brains and bodies are not designed to be taking in that much stimulus. Mm. So it's going to have an impact on us. And another thing to remember, and this is where I get preachy about it, is that I think it's also the context in which we watch it. We don't watch a porn video and then share it on Facebook. You don't watch (laughs) a really hot whatever put on Instagram and say, oh my God, this scene was so hot. I came twice just from watching it. You've got to watch it. Well, even if they didn't have community standards, we don't do that. Mm. We don't, you know, in general, a lot of people tend to watch porn in secret in general, or if not, there's this feeling of this is wrong. This is taboo. This is bad. This is naughty in general, but we have to understand the context of it. And also another thing really be very critical of where you get statistics and and information about the dangers of porn because a lot of them come from sources that are incredibly biased yes Um, i can imagine that's true and you know this is a whole other podcast as well you have to understand the religious right wing's influence in the movement against porn and how insidious that's been Mm. a lot of people will quote the book your brain on porn by gary wilson he was Mormon. Most of the oh studies <laughs> that says it all. <laughs> and it wasn't just that. He 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 died a few years ago. He was an awful bully. He doxed anyone who disagreed with him. He was such a vicious bully. He anybody who publicly spoke against them, he would get all of his followers to dox them. He was uh, so har- a harasser, if that's the term, a bully, such an aggressive person. But also the statistics that he quoted in that book came from Brigham Young University. Brigham Young University is a Mormon university. 
So yes, it's difficult, isn't it? There's a lot yeah. of science-based fact out there, facts out there that are very much cherry-picked, and it's very hard in general, this, you know, in this day and age. But certainly, yeah. if, if you're coming from a bias of you know desiring to see a particular outcome, that is not true science. Is it? We should always be curious, and we should always be trying to disprove ourselves rather than prove ourselves. Yeah. Anyway, we veered away slightly from business, which I'm really happy to, because actually, I just think it's really important to dive deep into the importance of sex and what it means for us in our culture and to ourselves. And I feel like we really, there's been a beautiful exploration of that today. And, and one of the things actually that you just shared about filters and you know how it affects us in social media made me think of actually of the posts that I see by you, which I really love because you, you don't try to kind of suck your stomach in and put on a beautiful filter and get your best angle and, and put this bright pink, shiny lip gloss and, you know, do the kind of Instagram and get the influencer hat on, you know, you <laughs> influencer coach hat. I do have an influencer coach hat. I really like it. But I don't wear it. In my I mean, I've got one too. I even have an ad with me wearing one. I'm like, oh, I'm such a cliche. So, yeah. you know, no judgment there, no judgment ever. But, um, but what I love about that is it's really, refreshing because you also do have your glam moments because you know hey we all deserve them I but know. I also love that when you're feeling less glam and you're just chilling I mean there's one that you even did where you intentionally put one underneath your chin yeah <laughs> and so I, I guess thoughts. this is where you know obviously that's you showing up as a personal brand as your business and so I kind of wanted to round up this conversation today around how you feel all these learnings you've developed around sex and the importance of sex and the kind of intrinsic things that I guess you are embodying to support your clients on their journey. What what does that look like for you? How has it infiltrated how you show up in your business? And no, I think that's pretty much my question. How does yeah. it show affect how you show up in your business and and the desire you have for where you want to take that your business? Ooh. I know that one of the principles I try and live by is I don't get my I don't teach or get my clients to do anything that I haven't done myself mm. or that I don't live by myself. I really try to, and I say try to because there's no such thing as perfection, to live by what I teach. Otherwise, I wouldn't feel in integrity. Mm. Um, and one of my principles that I learned from one of my mentors is body first, and that's really working with your body first, being where you are right now. In terms of also business, I think what one really wonderful thing about this work is that, you know, I, I kind of have to infuse pleasure into it because it's like, well, if I'm teaching it, I probably should make sure I keep doing it myself. Yeah. You know, we have to walk what we teach. And so that means bringing pleasure into my business, you know, bringing whenever I'm in a funk, going and dancing, um, bringing a feeling of sexiness into my business. Another thing is that naming the elephant in the room. One of the things I was trained to do was, first of all, to be aware of my own sexual, the, the own skeletons in my own sexual closet, and that I could only take my clients as further as I'd been. And so part of that is how my own biases show up will impact my clients. And that's the same in business. One of the really great things I learned in my training, the way that I work, is that we all have a taboo side and we all have a sexual subconscious. And a big part for me was learning that. I could embrace that shadow part. I've had weird, I've had really random sex dreams. I've had sex dreams about Trump before and I've woken up like, <laughs> oh my God, what just happened? <laughs> but luckily I know I learned enough and I've experienced enough to be like, hey, human brain, 
human sexual subconscious is going to do what the subconscious is going to do. And that really gave me this appreciation for the taboo, for our shadows, that we all have a shadow that we try and squash down. And we can embrace that and be like, yeah, it makes me a human, including our sexual subconscious. I just, I don't, I always aim to teach what I embody myself. And I don't want to teach anything that I have not embodied. Otherwise, it wouldn't really feel in alignment. There's things I can talk about and teach on, but I always try and be as transparent as I can with clients. And on social media, I don't try and paint my life to be a certain way. Um, I really believe in, yes, we can aspire to things. Yes, as humans, we have multiple personalities. We have multiple sides to ourselves. I can be glamorous and I can be this. And I can also be sitting on the sofa farting. And this is part of being a human is that we need to embrace all of it. And in terms of in the coaching world and healing certain things, I want to be very transparent that healing is absolutely possible. And yet it will always be a journey. It will always be a process. I try not to make any claims that are too good to be true because that's actually going to be harming my clients more. Um, I love all of this. And I feel like one of the biggest takeaways from listening listening to you today is that our shadow side, I think sometimes sex can almost be part of that in terms of things that we, we almost see as a taboo within ourselves or something we can still feel some shame around. Even those people who've done quite a lot of work around, sometimes there's shame around some some element of it, some yeah. depth of it that they haven't quite got to. Even those who feel quite comfortable in themselves, there's always more work to do, I kind of feel, in like so many areas of our life. But what I really like about what everything you've had to share is along the lines of that, you know, these things are about gently easing ourselves into these things. And most importantly, exercising extreme compassion towards ourselves throughout all of it that all of our sides are welcome and rather than feeling like one side is better than the other that Mm. all parts of us are welcome and that actually when we learn to nourish and look after all of those parts and we can perhaps say one of those parts is the seductress or or any of those things within us that you know life gets to kind of be in my mind, I'm always thinking about life in HD or life in like the yeah. old TVs we used to have. And it is kind of living that, you know, who doesn't want to live a life that's HD? Um, yeah. So I love everything you've shared today. It's been really, really beautiful. And if anyone's interested to learn about how they could find out more about you, your beautiful work, um, or give you a follow on Instagram, where can they find you? Um, so follow me on Instagram. I'm at Lucy Lou Rowett. Um, on my website and on my various links, I have two free I say free gifts, free tastes for you to try. One of them is a six-part audio series or audio course in getting better at asking for what you want in bed, more effective oh, yes, sexual communication. <laughs> yeah, because we all struggle with this, myself included. And also the other one is a video training on sexual confidence. So sexual confidence that feels authentic to you, where you don't feel that you're putting on an act or you're pretending to be into things you're not or having to be drunk or high in order to really have fun and feel good. No Beautiful. And this is such a delicious conversation because I do believe this, you know, the work I've done in business around receiving, receiving money, receiving compliments, uh, receiving gifts, receiving help definitely spills over into sex. So I love how I can imagine the work with you also does kind of it, like like all of these things when we work on an element of our being and bolster it support it and allow it to be in its fullness that always has the most delicious ripple effect in everything else that we do so thank you so much for coming on today lucy and sharing so much i feel like we could have talked for hours (laughs) (laughs) many parallel tracks there
<laughs> many, many parallel tracks. So thank you so much. And um, all the links for Lucy will be underneath this episode. So if you want to go check out those freebies that Lucy mentioned, please do look at the show notes where you'll find links to all of those things. And again, thank you so much, Lucy, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. have been listening to the Embodied Business Revolution podcast with myself, Polly Lavarello. Thank you so much for joining me today. And if you enjoyed today's episode and are keen to hear more, come on over and join us behind the scenes at Embodied Business Revolution on Instagram. We can't wait to say hi.